Well, you're going to need your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you came to church prepared to dig into God's Word, and everyone can grab their Bibles and open their Bibles to Acts chapter 17, and uh, we are going to be in verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Now, if you haven't been with us, uh, you wouldn't know this, but we've been just journeying through the book of Acts verse by verse. And uh, the book of Acts shows us the journey of the local church being born. Christ is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, uh, Jesus told his apostles, just ordinary men, that they were to be his witnesses in all of the world, first in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so because of their obedience, we are able to talk about the good news all these years later here in Granger, Indiana, and Christ is still building his church. And so the book of Acts is just fascinating. And I was praying, you know, there was like Easter Sunday, it's a big deal. You know, every week's a big deal, but for some reason we make this a big deal. And uh, people were like, what are you going to preach on Easter? And, and are you going to do a special Easter message? And I was like, I, I I'm not smart enough to figure that out. And uh, so I just was like, I'm going to open the Bible and see what the next thing in Acts was. And I was praying. And I truly believe that God gave us the perfect passage. It was just the next passage as I opened my Bible. And God has given us something that has stirred my affection and my worship for the risen Savior all week long from Acts chapter 17. His word, the Bible, knows what we need, when we need it, and he is faithful here today. And so the big idea in today's text is this. Here's the big idea. The, your response to the resurrection determines how God will judge you in eternity. Your response to the resurrection determines how God will judge you in eternity. Now, I don't know... How, who's here today? I don't know what you came in with. There are certainly a lot of people in this room. But I, the way I see it, there are probably three kinds of people here today. There are people here who know God. There are people here who know the God of glory and who have a living, personal, active relationship with God. And then there are people here today who question whether or not there even is a God. You would be honest and say, you know, I don't have a relationship with God. I have a whole lot of questions and I've seen a whole lot of things surrounding religion and God and I don't really want anything to do with it, but somebody dragged me here this morning. And then there's some people here who would probably say, I do have a relationship with God, but the truth is you actually do not have a relationship with the God of glory, the God of the Bible. And I don't know what category you find yourself in here on Easter Sunday of 2022, but this text today is going to help us with three things. There is one true God. God can be known personally. He wants to be close to you. He wants to be your friend and that he is known, this God is known through the risen Christ. And so if you would get your eyes on a copy of God's word, maybe you have an app on your phone if you don't have a Bible, or maybe a neighbor next to you has a Bible they can share with you. Uh, but we want to read verse by verse what God wants to say in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Let's read it together. I'll read the first five verses. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. What a great thing to preach on Easter Sunday. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Stop there. So right off the bat, we see that the Apostle Paul is in a new city. He finds himself in the historic, iconic city of Athens, Greece. Has anybody been to Athens, Greece in the room? Anybody? I have been to Athens, Greece. It is a beautiful city. You can just feel the history in Athens, Greece. So much of philosophy and sports history and art and theater and architecture and beauty and politics have been influenced throughout history by the city of Athens. It was the epicenter of some of the world's greatest philosophers and thinkers and artists, people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno, who gave us the religion of Stoicism. And verse 16 of the text tells us that Paul finds himself in Athens on sort of an off day, if you will. Verse 15 tells us that they fled Berea and they took Paul to Athens. And so Silas stayed in Berea and Dr. Luke who was on his missions team, is back in Philippi still. And so here's Paul in a city that he's no doubt heard about, uh, waiting for the rest of his team to join him. Sounds like a great day to sightsee, have a gyro down by the Mediterranean. I mean, that is a great day in the city of Athens. And maybe, maybe Paul did some of that, I don't know. But very quickly we see that when you truly have the Spirit of God in you, you can't help but notice things that do not glorify God. And the city of Athens, it was full of idolatry, just full of idols all around. In verse 16, it says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. That, by the way, the marketplace is a great place to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't just need shared in the church. That's why at Gospel City Church, we talk about living sent as the people of God because this message of hope that is within us, it should be taken and it should be shared and preached in the marketplace every single day. That's exactly what Paul was doing. And he reasoned with those in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he was preaching foreign gods and divinities. So there's two kind of religious groups that Paul is speaking to. The Epicureans believed the gods were far off and unconcerned with your life. So they were essentially hedonists. Their motto was, if it feels good, do it. Uh, if it brings you pleasure, go for it. Not concerned with life after death because philosophy says that when you die, you are done. Now the Stoics believed that everything was God. So the Stoics believed that the rocks were God, that the sun was God, that the storms were God, uh, that the weather was God. G.K. Chesterton was a writer, a theologian, and he said this, if you stop worshiping God, you don't start worshiping nothing, you worship everything. And if you are worshiping everything, then you actually know nothing worthy of worship. So these are just two examples of something that I think is still very prevalent in our culture 
in, in America today. Many live, in their, many live their life unconcerned with the future or life after death. Many live by the motto, eat, drink, and be merry. And yet if you look deep down in your life, you would honestly say probably that you're not merry at all. And many live trying to fill the void that they feel with what they can get their hands on. So as the Stoics worshiped creation and finite objects, you've tried to fill your void with sex, with drugs, with relationships, with religion, with nature, you fill in the blank. And for believers, especially on Easter Sunday, we've come to see the foolishness of trying to fill the void in our lives with these things. Those who have truly been changed by Jesus see the emptiness in all that this world has to offer and it should provoke our spirit to tell others about Jesus Christ, just as it did Paul that day. Now, some, they called him a babbler. Uh, the word babbler translates to um, seed picker. He was like a bird, just like picking up ideas and dropping them here and there, nothing coherent. You know, the Greeks were too smart for his ideas. And so I, I don't know what brought you to church today. Maybe your grandma was like, you're coming to church and you got dragged here and you're gonna go this afternoon. And someone's like, What'd you do this morning? I went to church. How was that? Oh, some dude got up and babbled about the Bible all afternoon. I, maybe, that's, maybe that's what you'll think. But some thought he was just speaking of other foreign gods in a pluralistic way. Like they say, you're speaking of these foreign divinities, divinities, gods that we've never heard of. And they seem to separate Jesus and the resurrection. Who is this Jesus that you speak of? And Surely there's not a God of the resurrection. Surely there's not a God over uh, the dead. Once you die, you're done. And then in verse 19, they take Paul and they bring him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So as Paul preaches the gospel, they become curious. I pray that you would even be curious as to what this message, what Paul is speaking today in his word. And he says, for you bring some strange things to our ears we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners, they, they love just like talking about new ideas, new gods. And so, verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Stop there for one sec. So, let me just show you, give you some context over here. I was in... Athens, I told you. And so Paul, he would have been like down in uh, the marketplace, which was known as the Agora. And so uh, everything kind of rolls down in Athens and then moves upward. And the whole, you know, their, their gods, the holy things are upwards. And so Paul, as his spirit was provoked, and as they're trading idols and selling things, and he sees idolatry all around, his spirit is provoked. He's speaking the gospel in the marketplace. And then they say, we got to go and, and hash this out. And so they go upward to the Areopagus or Mars Hill, it translates to. And this, would, this is the view from Mars Hill. I was on that rock where Paul preached this message, and that is a breathtaking view of the city of Athens. And so as he looks out, he's like, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. Now, just off in the distance was the Acropolis. Now, the Acropolis is like the highest peak in the city of Athens, and this is where the Greeks house their gods. They have temples on this mountain where their gods are Housed. And so there's the Parthenon, the Temple of Nike, Temple of Athena. There's all kinds of carved images like this next picture. 
And, and it's just ornate, I mean, fascinating architecture for such historic history. But the next picture shows the temple of Nike just looming over the city of Athens. And so you can imagine like the religiosity of this uh, country. And here they are in this city and their so-called gods are up here watching over their city. And they would travel up the hill and they would sacrifice and do all kinds of heinous things to appease their god. Here's a picture of me sitting on Mars Hill in my jorts playing my guitar, <laughs> looking real cool. The Acropolis in the background, what a, what a day it was. But in, in verse 23, okay, verse 23, uh, we will see the genius of Paul's ability to communicate and contextualize the message of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. He says, as I notice the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul's like, you Athenians are so smart that you've absolutely confused yourselves. You've got so many gods and idols that you've made a shrine to an unknown God. Why does somebody need a shrine to an unknown God when you have all these other gods in this mountain full of gods? Well, because they knew that something was missing. They knew there must have been something bigger out there. With all of those false gods, they had never met the one true God. And Paul says, I'm about to introduce you to the unknown God. But the good news is this, he alone is only God, but you can actually know him. And then he moves into a glorious sermon for us on Easter Sunday of 2022, and he proclaims nine attributes of the unknown God. I'm gonna give them to you. Nine attributes of the unknown God. The first one is this. The true God is one. The true God is one. Verse 24, he says, the God, that's how he starts. You know how when you watch the NFL and uh, there's like a player from like a cocky university, say like Ohio State, and he's like, I'm from the Ohio State University. As if to separate him from like the rest of the schools. That's, a, that's, a, that's how Paul, in the middle of all these gods, he says, the God. In, in the middle of the Greeks. Uh, because there is only one God. He is set apart. And he is Alpha and Omega. And he is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He, there is none like him. He is triune. He is three in one. And scripture says, thou shalt have no other gods besides me. So if you have more than one God, you do not know the one true God. The second thing that Paul declares, attribute, is that the true God is creator. Verse 24 goes on, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul quickly establishes that God is the creator of all things. And if God is the creator of all things, he is the owner of all things and he is over all things and all things exist because God created them. That was in direct contrast to what the Stoics would have believed. They believed that God and creation were separate. And yet creation is worshiping God. Creation was made to declare the glory of God. And it's as if Paul says to the Athenians, if you do not separate creation and the creator, then you do not know the one true God. The third thing that Paul says is that the true God is king. The true God is king. In verse 24, it says he is being Lord of heaven and earth. Paul establishes the lordship and kingly position that must be attributed to the God of glory. Scripture says in the Psalms, 
uh, that our God sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases. The song of Moses in Revelation says, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Will not all fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and will worship you and to know God as anything less than king over all is to not know the one true God. Paul's on a roll right out of the gate. Number four, the fourth attribute of the unknown God that he gives, the true God is transcendent. Verse 24 goes on, the God does not live in temples made by man. I mean, Paul's a bold dude. He's standing on a rock surrounded by temples made by human hands. And he proclaims that the one true God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. You can imagine how offensive this would have been to the audience as he preached the gospel. Now to say that God is transcendent is to recognize that he is high and he is holy. He exists in perfect holiness, in otherness. God is in a category of his own that cannot be fathomed or met. One philosopher has said uh, that trying to describe God is like trying to pour the ocean into a teacup. Can you imagine the teacup? It'd be obliterated into a thousand tiny peoples and so would your brain as you try to understand God. God dwells in unapproachable light. His glory is the outshining of his presence and that glory is enough to incinerate one who would look upon him. And you're trying to tell me, Greeks, that you house your gods in boxes over there on that hill? Anyone who tries to reduce God to human comprehension or logic does not know the one true God. Number five, the true God is self-sufficient. Verse 25 says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Get this this morning, God is not lacking anything. God is in need of nothing or no one, and yet it is rooted deep in our sinful nature as humans that we would have to appease God in order for him to love us, that we would have to earn his love or provide the right offering so that he might love us. God does not need us. God doesn't need your intellect. God doesn't need your offering. God doesn't need your temples. God doesn't need anything that you bring. But we're going to see today that he wants your heart. Anyone who thinks he can offer what God lacks does not know the one true God. Number six, Paul continues, God, the true God is giver. Verse 25, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul tells his audience that this God is self-sufficient, transcendent, creating. He is king, but he is sustaining your very life and your very breath. You and I have means reason to worship today because the breath that is in your lungs as you stood to your feet today is being sustained by a creator God who does not need you, but he wants to have a relationship with you. What a tragedy to go through life not being able to thank the one who gives you life and breath and everything. And yet a majority of the world wants to believe that they are alive by chance or that they have no purpose in this life. Even as I was writing uh, this sermon and studying this week in a local coffee shop, I was sitting there and across the speakers, I heard a song playing and I was like, 
I looked up what the song was. Here's what the lyrics I heard over that speaker in that coffee shop said. I believe most definitely in only that which I can see. And my senses and myself agree, there is no you, there's only me. I don't believe in heaven or hell, no. In fact, there's no plan as far as I can tell. It's every man for himself, it's only me, there's no one else. What a sad reality to live in. And yet just as the philosophers were looking for the meaning of life and higher power, our culture is too. We are looking for something deep down, whether you know it or not. And we may not listen to the ideologies of philosophers, but we listen to music and artists who are peddling the same kind of nonsense, just like that day in the coffee shop. And the truth is, if you do not recognize God as the all-sustaining, life-giving source of everything existing, then you do not know the one true God. Now, the seventh thing that Paul says in his sermon, the true God is in control. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. The Greeks, they would have been massively offended by this truth as Paul declares that every nation came from the same man. Paul's declaring that all of creation, all of mankind has come from Adam. And Adam was the first to bring sin into the world and we have all been born of Adam, therefore we are sinful and therefore we do not have access to the holy transcendent God of the universe because we fall short of his glory because of sin in our lives. The Greeks would have called the non-Greeks barbarians because they thought they were better than everyone. But Paul essentially is declaring at this point that God shows no partiality. That in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew. There is no Greek. We are one in Christ. And not only are we one, but God has spread us out across the world by his sovereign control. And then he says this, if you do not see your God as in control, your God is too small and you've missed the one true God. Paul's going hard on the rock, Mars Hill in Athens, and he gets to number eight. This is the good news. He closes with good news, and then he closes with bad news. And today I close with good news, and I close with bad news. And I pray that the Spirit of God would be here in your midst. The God that I am proclaiming to you, the God that Paul was proclaiming in Athens is the one true God, the King of glory. And he created you. He breathed you into existence. He created you in his image so that he might walk with you and have a relationship with you. And the eighth thing that Paul says, the true God is knowable. Verse 27, he spread them out over the face of the earth that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of our own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is huge news on Mars Hill that day. And this is huge news for us on Easter Sunday of 2022. The transcendent, high and holy, life-sustaining God is not far off. In fact, he is close and he can be your friend. 
And though he doesn't need anyone or anything, he desires to walk with you and be intimately and intricately involved in the deepest facets of your life. God is indeed a just and sovereign king, but he wants to walk with you and lead you and guide you like a father leads his child. And scripture says in Ecclesiastes that he has put eternity in every man's heart. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so if you're truly honest with yourself, you know something is missing in your life. That's why you seek and why you feel your way towards filling that emptiness, just like the Greeks, seeking and feeling, having a shrine to an unknown God because they know something's missing. And the problem is we most often fill the void with that which will never satisfy. In our attempts to find purpose and meaning and freedom, we most often find heartache and brokenness and addiction and depression and eventually we hit rock bottom. But God is not far from each one of us. That's what Paul says to these Athenians, these religious men who were seeking all the world to find a God that would appease the void in their life. God is not far, and he made the first move. That's why he's not far. God made the first move. He moved toward you, and I pray that you would sense him moving toward you even today, even right now. And all of creation is pointing to him and declaring his glory. And the emptiness in your life is longing for this God, the one true God. And even greater is the truth that God came to us. Why am I telling you about the God of glory on Easter Sunday? Because you need to be reconciled to this God. You desperately need to be reconciled to God. And the only way it's been made possible is because God moved toward you when he sent his one and only son to this messed up and broken world. Scripture says it this way, at the proper time, God sent forth his son to be born under the law so he could redeem those who are under the law. That's you and me. And Jesus, he never sinned. He kept the law. You and I have broken the law on our best day. And that's what separates us from a holy God. But Jesus came born under the law so he could keep it and redeem those who are under the law. He lived a perfect life and he grew in the wisdom and the stature of his father. And he loved you so much that he endured the cross. Philippians chapter two says it this way, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus, the God of the universe, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And while hope seemed lost because the sinless savior died, he was only stealing death's power once and for all. And because though he was laid behind a stone and they made his grave with the wicked, it was on the third day that he rose again from the dead, that he came out of his grave so that you could get out of yours one day. He came out of his grave so that we could walk in abundance. And Philippians says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. You can bow the knee, you can call upon this Jesus who walked out of his grave today, 
and he can change your life forever. He can change your destination and your eternity. You can have a homecoming like we sang right before I came up. But eventually you will be made to bow the knee and in the end it will be too late. Paul declares the God who has made himself known as defeated has defeated death and the grave, and if your God doesn't have resurrection power, you do not know the one true God. And then he gives the bad news to the Greeks. The good news is God is close, and you can know him. But here's the the ninth thing that Paul says. The true God will judge the world through the risen Christ. Verse 29 Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. That was everything that was surrounding them. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God will judge the world. This God that I tell you of today, he is going to judge you. And he will either look at you and see your own human efforts, and you'll experience his judgment for an eternity in hell, separated from his goodness and the God of glory, or He will look at you and see the precious blood of Jesus whom he poured out his judgment toward sin on. That's why Paul says God commands all people to repent. To repent is to turn from your sin. If you're born into this world with a sin nature, with sin on your mind and on your heart and you are walking this way, the only way to be saved is to understand, to be intersected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on a cross in your place as a substitute for your sin and as his precious blood, as his spirit opens up your heart, as God draws close to you, you open up your life and you receive him and you, start to, you, you believe that this can save you, you believe that this can fill the void in your life and you repent. You say, Lord, I believe and I, I turn from my sin. That's what repentance looks like right there. I was going this way and God put me on a trajectory toward heaven, toward a relationship with him, toward glory. And now I'm walking this way and I don't do it perfectly and I still have things messed up and I'm still ever aware that I am a sinful, messed up human being, but Christ's blood has covered me because he came out of the grave and he was resurrected that day. And Paul says, God commands that all people repent. And I say to you today, God commands that all people repent because your only hope of salvation, freedom, and knowing God, filling the void in your life is to recognize that you can't fill it on your own. So you turn from the world and follow Jesus. If you do not believe God will judge your eternity after you die, you do not know the one true God and you will live absent from his presence in hell. Now I said at the beginning of this message that the big idea from this text is this, your response to the resurrection determines how God will judge you in eternity. 
If I could urgently and passionately call you to anything, it would be to turn from your sins and follow Jesus. Unlike the Greeks believed and contrary to popular belief in our culture today, life after death truly matters. This is not what you are living for. Life after death matters way more than your best day here on earth. The truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is either the best news in the world or it will be the worst news for those who live as if it weren't true. You will either spend an eternity knowing the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of the God that I have described to you today, or you will live eternally aware that you are absent from the presence of God. And the Bible says that that place is like weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell will be a place of desolation, despair, eternal fire, and the conscious torment of cursing God who is absent. And the way I see it today, there's really two responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you want to be or not, you will be judged by the righteousness of Jesus and the truth that he has power over death. And would you look at the responses that we see in verse 32 through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You can walk out of here today, hearing this message, seeing all the singing and you know the beautiful environment and the celebration that we put on, and you can mock the resurrection. That's what many did on the Mars Hill that day. Many walked out and they said, it's just a bunch of babble, just a bunch of foreign divinities. What, what can that do for me? You know, you know, a bunch of people, they get real excited about Jesus coming out of the grave, but then life moves on. Life gets busy. I got stuff to do. You can walk out mocking the truth that Jesus rose from the dead, but God will judge you according to that response. Or you will be like those who desired to hear more. So they went with Paul and they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you're going to figure it all out today, but you can come back. And there's people here who want to walk with you and who want to take time with you and want to answer questions and show you what God has said. And in this passage, we see the necessary ingredients for salvation. I pray that you are sensing God is close right now, that he's drawing towards you. Even if you've walked with God for 40 years, you need him to draw close and remind you of this glorious truth. And I've been praying all week long that as he moves towards you, you would respond to his resurrection fresh and anew. And in this passage, we see the necessary means for knowing this God. You know him through repentance and through belief. Romans chapter 10, 9 through 10. One of the simplest ways to say how to turn to the Lord says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he's king, that he will rule, that you'll no longer live as your own king, 
but you'll make him Lord of your life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Your belief in your heart will move you to action, will move you to follow Christ. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You gotta say it. Jesus, I believe that you are king. Jesus, I believe that you can change my life. And if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I've heard this over and over and over and over again. And I don't always live like it. Even in the middle of this week, painfully aware of my own sinfulness, painfully aware that I need the blood of Jesus just as much as you. And I've turned to him. I've walked with him for a long time. I'm still a sinful human being, but because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I can come to the God of glory and know that he has forgiven me and know that he covers my sinfulness with his precious son's blood. And he wants to do the same thing for you. So I'm gonna ask everyone to bow their heads for a moment. I don't know your story. I don't know what you've walked in here with. But I gotta believe that there are people here today who came in thinking they had a relationship with the God of glory. And even now, as we come to a close, you're questioning whether or not you actually do know God. You're questioning whether or not you have actually followed the one true God. And those of you here today who have come and you would be honest and say, you know what, I don't follow God, never been a big religion guy, never been a big church guy or Jesus guy. I pray that you would know that God is close. I don't know what you're trying to feel your way towards or grasp for, but the Spirit brought you here for a reason today. God is not far off. and He wants to change your life. Keep your heads bowed, but when I was young, the Lord used my father to lead me to the Lord at the top of my steps in Butler, Pennsylvania. And he led me in a simple prayer. I wanna lead us in this prayer together. You repeat after me. Father God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I acknowledge that there is nothing I can do to save myself. I desperately need Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is God and that God has raised him from the dead, stealing death's power once and for all. Just as Jesus got out of his grave, would you help me to get up out of mine and walk in a relationship with the God of glory? Lord, we give you praise here today and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your compassion. But most of all, we thank you that you can be known, that you are not far off, that you do not dwell in temples made by human hands, but in you we live and move and have our being.
God, we worship and celebrate and praise because of all that you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here's what, just hang with me. We're gonna go out celebrating today, but I wanna ask you to do something bold, okay, in the room. If that was the first time you have prayed that prayer, I'm gonna ask you to stand where you are in just a moment, just in just a moment. And if, if you came in today and you know that you have not been living for the God of glory, but you prayed that prayer and you wanna rededicate your life and you wanna walk out of here and make some changes and you wanna actually get some help and you wanna come in here again, I'm gonna ask you to stand too. If you came in here today and you were like, I, I thought I knew God, but as we've unpacked God's word today, I don't actually think I have a living, active, personal relationship with the God of glory. I want you to stand. All right, I know it's bold, but stand in this room. One, two, three. Come on, you can stand up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can we give the Lord a hand? Can we give the Lord a hand? Come on, shout for joy. Shout for joy. He changes lives. He is moving. Now listen, you stay standing a moment. We're going to have some pastors and elders head out to the cross out in the lobby. And I want to invite you to go uh, out there and to find someone to talk to, find someone that you can pray with. They'll be there after the service, but it's going to get crazy out in the lobby. You can go now if you want, but don't leave today. If you stood up, don't leave today without getting a Bible in your hand, without getting a new believer's kit in your hand without thinking about the truth of God, okay? You can go right now. They're ready to talk to you, but please go to the cross after this service for everyone. Let's stand and let's proclaim all that Christ has done and let's go out celebrate.